Okay, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And just a very quick recap as to what we covered last week. And we saw from chapter 8 last time how the apostles returned to the mother church in Jerusalem after a very successful outreach in Samaria. And Philip was also dispatched from Samaria to go down to Gaza to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. And yet neither Peter, John or Philip ordained any elders in reference to the Samaritans in reference to meeting as a group. They got saved, but there was no system put in place for such people to be a part of. The same was true of the Ethiopian eunuch. He believed, he was baptised, but off he went rejoicing, full of the Holy Ghost, great joy and peace, so on and so forth. And yet the eunuch didn't speak in tongues, whereas the Samaritans did. So you see, you've got to be very careful when you read Acts of the Apostles because one group of people got saved one way, through faith in Christ alone, of course, which resulted in them speaking in tongues, no languages, Acts chapter 2, whereas another group of people, or on this occasion an individual, an Ethiopian eunuch, did not speak in tongues. So be very careful when you study the Word of God and when you cross-reference the Word of God And when you teach the word of God, if you are a Bible teacher, but as a student of scripture, which is what I would consider myself to be, I can see very clearly a difference. On top of that, we saw from Acts 8 last time how Peter sharply rebuked Simon, a type of Pope, for trying to buy the gift of the Holy Ghost, just like papists try to sell the gift of the Holy Ghost to ignorant Catholics. There's nothing new under the sun as Solomon very wisely said. So just some opening points to share with you all on this Lord's Day morning. And like I said last time, and I'll have to keep saying it because I think it's relevant, that Matthew, Acts and Hebrews are probably the most difficult books to teach doctrinally. Yes, we can spiritualize many passages, but we need to be careful that we don't spiritualize too many passages. Otherwise, we end up nullifying the scripture. But uh, let's continue on and let's start today's broadcast in Acts chapter 9. And I pray that the Lord God will bless this message. I pray that it will be heard all over the world, on the radio and through the internet. And I pray it will be a great blessing to those that hear it. So let's start today's broadcast in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Solotarsus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. An apostle can be a disciple, but a disciple is necessarily an apostle. If you are a saved man or woman, you are a disciple by the new birth. And here this term disciple or disciples, plural, will be in reference to men and women. So it's true that the apostles on certain occasions are referred to as being disciples, but disciples post the era of the apostles are never apostles. So I am a disciple, you are a disciple, but we are not apostles. And he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter, this religious zeal, this enemy of the cross, and Jesus told us about such people back in John chapter 16, And he's off to Damascus, but he needs letters. He needs an arrest warrant. You see, he's going to do things by the book. And even the Nazis did things by the book. 
and it says, if he found any of this way, in reference to the way, a term for the early church, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. This pictures a religious conspiracy. We saw this back in the Gospels with Caiaphas, and we saw it back early on in the Gospels with Herod the Great and his religious priests. And you know, when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, they went up to Jerusalem and Herod called them in and he said, uh, what are you doing here? I'm just abbreviating now. I'm just giving a quick crash course, if you will. I'm just uh, giving a snapshots of Matthew chapter two. And they said, we have come from far to visit the king of the Jews, so on and so forth. And he says to his wise men, what can you tell me about the Messiah? And they say, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote the scripture from Micah chapter five. And yet they don't go down to worship the king. Herod doesn't go down to worship the king. It falls to the wise men to go down to worship the king. And these wise men, unsaved Gentiles, but had a faith in the one true God, had some understanding of the Old Testament Tanakh, no doubt, thanks to Daniel, head down to the birth of the newborn king and they bring gifts, so on and so forth. But here you are seeing a religious conspiracy. In fact, please turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. And this conspiracy is alluded to in Psalm chapter 2 in reference to this is my beloved son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, so on and so forth. But in Jeremiah chapter 11, let's look at verse 9, please. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the Lord Elohim said unto me, Jeremiah, type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the weeping prophet, a very emotional man who was sent to apostate Judah and Jerusalem, unbelieving Israel, if you will, to turn them back to the Lord. And it was a great battle. It was a very difficult ministry that he found himself equipped. He was struggling most of the time to get Israel to turn back to the Lord. But it says here, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Keep that in mind when you look at Acts chapter 9. But look at verse 10, please. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Forefathers were apostates. Their forefathers rejected most of the kings and the patriarchs. And they refused to hear his words. Old Testament. And on top of that, they wanted to worship other gods to serve them, so on and so forth. And those gods are idols. Those gods are images. And if I was to transfer that into the 21st century, I would say to you all this morning that this reference to gods would be in reference to the Catholic Church worshipping statues, saints, so on and so forth. They too worship gods, and yet they won't admit it. On top of that, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenants, old covenants, of course, which I made with their fathers. Do you see there's a pattern here of rebellion? There's a pattern here of refusing to bow the knee and worship the one true God. Verse 11, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. I will bring evil upon them, God's own people, which they shall not be able to escape. It starts with the captivity, going into Babylon for 70 years, 
but as always there's a greater application to this. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. In reference to 70 AD. 12. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense. But they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. They're going to cry, weep and wail. They're going to beseech their gods. They're going to offer up sacrifice and incense and so forth. And yet the gods can't help them. The gods can't even hear them. And this so pictures the Catholic Church worshipping statues, saints, dead people, so on and so forth, praying to priests and popes and Mary, and yet all to no avail. So if you think that piece of scripture is unique, turn to Ezekiel, please. Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22, scripture with scripture. Look at verse 25, please. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening a prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken their treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. And it goes on and on and on. And that's why prophet after prophet was raised up to go to the house of Israel, calling her to repent. And that's why the Lord is long-suffering. And that's why he put up with you before you were saved. And he puts up with you after you are saved. So don't ever think that because you are born again, because you are saved, that somehow you're okay, that somehow you are sinless. That somehow you are safe. No, you can fall. You can fall inboard. You can lose your fellowship with the Lord. But praise God, you can never fall overboard and lose your salvation. So be very careful, please. Go back to Acts chapter 9. Be very careful not to ever get puffed up. And here this conspiracy, this religious conspiracy is building. And here Paul wants to do it by the book. Paul gets an arrest warrant by the priests on his way down to Damascus to capture saved men and women and he's going to interrogate them and so on and so forth but look at verse 3 acts 9 verse 3 please and as he journeyed he came near damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth i heard a voice saying unto him soul soul why persecutest thou me soul soul why persecutest thou me jesus christ is speaking to paul and he's speaking to paul in hebrew and I think it's fair to say from Adam right up into the last man in Revelation 22, the Lord speaks to his people in Hebrew. And I think it's quite possible to say that in heaven, the language is going to be Hebrew. Soul, soul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting my people? You see, if you hurt a saved man or woman, you are hurting the Lord and you risk being destroyed by him. Five, and he said... Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Who art thou, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Adonai? Who are you, Jehovah? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Now, did you get that? Paul is speaking to the Lord in Hebrew. And he's saying, Who are you, Adonai? Adonai is Hebrew for Lord. And yet, in Greek, it's kulios. And I think he's praying, or he's speaking, to the Lord in Hebrew and he's saying who are you Adonai or who are you Jehovah or who are you Elohim or who are you Yahweh or who are you El Gabor or who are you El Alion the Lord has many names in Hebrew and he says I am Jesus whom thou persecutest and this is a great scripture to show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks it's very hard for you Paul to come against me it's very hard for you, Paul, to 
try and overthrow my will. And we saw that back in chapter 5. And I'll read it to you very quickly. In verse 39, the words of Gamaliel, Paul's rabbi, Paul's teacher. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. Lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Same sort of language here. Jesus is speaking to Paul. And yet he's not yet called Paul. And he's saying, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to thwart my will. But let's read on. Six. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Paul is no longer calling the shots. Paul is no longer the chief. Lord, what will you have me to do? And this piece of scripture says to arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. That's a call. Now I'll say this very briefly that I don't know the exact moment that Paul got saved. I know it's chapter 9 but I can't be dogmatic as to the exact moment that he believed on the Lord. It could be 4, it could be 5, it could be 6. But what you are getting here is justification in the sight of God versus justification in the sight of man. I'm going to come back to that shortly. 7. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. The same type of language was found back in John chapter 2 when the Lord spoke to the Father and the Father spoke back to him and some thought an angel spoke to him and others thought it thundered. This is what's happening here. Paul's associates can hear a sound, a voice, a noise, but they can't see or hear what's going on because the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking directly to Saul of Tarsus. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If another come, they won't follow him. Again, a slight abbreviation from John chapter 10. But here, Christ is speaking to Saul of Tarsus and only Saul of Tarsus. And this does picture the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to calling those for service, not salvation. 8. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Humiliated. Just picture this for a moment, if you will. Paul is this great power. And Paul has been biding his time for months. He's a zealot. He's a religious fanatic. He can't stand the idea of the way growing. He hates the idea of his religion, Judaism, falling flat on its face. And he doesn't understand that the Lord is going to have Jew and Gentile serving him in the body of Christ. So he is like a wild man going about to devour whom he will. And I can't emphasize this enough that we were told as I say from John 16 that many would come and persecute you and put you to death and they would think that they are doing God a service and that's Jesus Christ speaking about those that were going to come after his death and put his people to death and yet Paul will tell you later on that he served his forefathers with a pure conscience he would tell you that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees he would tell you that he suffered all things for the sake of the elect so on so forth so Paul would tell you this that he was a good godly man Pre-Acts 9, and yet the truth of the matter was he wasn't saved until Acts chapter 9. Which means, had he died pre-Acts chapter 9, he would have gone straight to hell. And that shows you how precious salvation is. And that shows you how near to death we are each and every moments of the day. But let's move on, please. Verse 9. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. He's physically and spiritually blind for three days. 
Now three is very important. Three days the Lord is in the tomb. And after three days he comes up out to the tomb and goes back to heaven. In chapter 7, Paul arrives on the scene. And by the end of chapter 9, he leaves the scene for one chapter. He comes back in chapter 11. So think about that for a moment, if you will. Chapter 7, Paul arrives on the scene. He's called Saul of Tarsus. He's found throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9. But he departs in verse 30 from Acts chapter 9, only to return in Acts chapter 11. So for three and a half chapters, he's here, then he's gone, then he returns. On top of him being physically and spiritually blind, no doubt he's praying and fasting. To be fair to Paul, he was a religious Jew. He had a great zeal for Jehovah, for Yahweh, for Elohim, and yet he wasn't regenerated until Acts chapter 9. So it's a great mystery to try and work out when exactly he got saved. And I'll say this, that I don't believe for one moment, had the Lord not stepped in and not Paul off his horse, revealed himself to him via this great light, I don't think Paul would have turned to the Lord. He would have been an enemy of the cross and he would have done great damage to the body of Christ. And yet it is amazing that the Lord had 12 apostles and 70 assistants to the apostles, if you will, and yet not one of those 70 was called to do the work that Paul would do. Not one of the 12 was called to do the work that Paul would do. It would result in this event occurring. And I'll come back to my thoughts on Paul and his conversion and what he typifies a little later. Look at verse 10, please. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. The Lord is still speaking to prophets. He's still appearing in visions because the New Testament hasn't yet been written. Now today we say that the just, those of us which have been justified, shall live and function and operate by faith. We don't go out by sight, we live by faith. We can't see the good and the bad many times. We trust the Lord that he will bring us through difficult and dark times. But here, this is an intertestimonial period. Yes, we are in the new covenant, don't get me wrong, but the apostles are still functioning. People are still being saved, left, right and centre, and yet... The Holy Spirit is working in different ways with different people. I showed you with the Samaritans how they got saved and how the apostles had to go down and pray for them and pray with them to receive the Holy Ghost. And yet when the Ethiopian eunuch arrives on the scene, Philip goes down on his own, witnesses to him, prays with him and then baptizes him. And as you know, the eunuch doesn't speak in tongues and off he goes rejoicing, whereas the Samaritans spoken tongues and that's why Simon was so interested in this great miracle taking place he wanted to be like the Pope he wanted to be a dispenser of the Holy Ghost he wanted to charge people to receive the Holy Ghost like the Catholics do with purgatory and indulgences and other great scandals and blasphemy so on and so forth but here Ananias has seen a vision and Ananias has been told to prepare for service verse 11 and the Lord said unto him arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. This is very similar to chapter 8, verses 16, 17, and 18, but not quite. Ananias 
go to the house of Judas, look out for one called Saul of Tarsus, put your hand on him that he might receive his sight, physical sight. Yes, he was physically blind. Yes, he was spiritually blind. But go down, pray over him that he might receive his sight. And I showed you from John 20, it was, I think, from last time, how the Lord said to the apostles, whosoever sins you remit are remitted, and whosoever sins you attain are attained. And this is the same sort of picture. And here Ananias, a disciple, not an apostle, has been dispatched to go down to pray for Saul of Tarsus. And just picture this for a moment. This man, Saul of Tarsus, this individual full of hate and zeal, bitterness, jealousy, envy, no doubt, is blind. He's praying, he's fasting, he's probably scared. And at the same time, no doubt, excited. And it says in verse 13, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name, to call on thy name, picture salvation by faith in Christ alone. You can get saved by calling on the name of the Lord. You can get saved by believing on the name of the Lord. You can get saved by trusting in the name of the Lord. And the problem with this, of course, from Ananias' point of view, is that soul has a bad reputation. And that's the truth of the matter. If you have a bad reputation, sometimes it's very difficult to get rid of your bad reputation. And he, Ananias, would have known all about Saul of Tarsus, this awful man, this Christian hunter, this Christian persecutor. And yet, this is typical of the Lord. He'll take someone like Saul of Tarsus and turn him, regenerate him, and send him back out into the field. But this time to preach about his son to those that he was once working alongside. This is a great miracle, and this gets quoted by many people, unfortunately, to mock the word of God, but that mocking will be put back on their own heads at the great white throne judgment. This is in verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And he certainly did. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's caused my own people to suffer for maybe two, three, four years. He's put some of my people to death. And now it's time for him to suffer for me. And that pictures discipleship. It's quite easy to be saved. It's straightforward to be saved. But it's so hard to live for the Lord God. It's so hard to crucify the flesh. It's so hard to pick up the cross. It's so hard to deny yourself. It's so hard to put others first. It's so hard to forgive when you've been wronged. It's hard to pray on your knees every day. It's hard to read the word of God every day and study it. But here the focus is in verse 16 in reference to Saul of Tarsus being converted, being saved. And I can understand Ananias's apprehension, anxiety, trepidation in reference to Saul of Tarsus being delivered from persecuting the church. And I showed you from chapter 7, when Stephen, on his knees, minutes from death, says, Father, forgive them, lay not this sin to their charge, 
which is what the Lord said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here, Saul's time has come, not for punishment, not to be destroyed. And if we got what we deserved, we'd all be destroyed. But he's going to be delivered from himself, from his bitterness, from his anger, from his hatred. He's going to be turned and he's going to receive his physical sight and spiritual sight. And this man, I say, will turn the world around for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will close today's broadcast in verse 16. Much ground still to cover as we continue through Acts chapter 9. But I'll say this one last time. That Saul of Tarsus, on his way up to Damascus with an arrest warrant or two, was thrown off his horse due to his great light from heaven. And the Lord speaks to him in Hebrew. And he affirms the Lord's deity. And he says, what will you have me to do? He's ready for service. Just like that. And the Lord says, okay. Off you go to Judas's house. And I'll send one of my servants, Ananias, to come and give you your sight. And to baptize you, so on and so forth. And that shows that Paul wasn't going to take the lead. That shows that the early church has this well-groomed structure. Which worked very nicely. And yet... As we read through Acts of the Apostles, this structure seems to decrease. This structure seems to go in a different direction. In Acts chapter 1, they are calling a meeting to a place, Judas Iscariot, and they go for Matthias. And yet, in Acts chapter 12, when James, the son of Zebedee, is put to death, no one calls any meeting to replace him. Did you notice that? There's no meeting call to replace James, the son of Zebedee. Why? Because you're in a transitional period. So please be very careful when you read through Acts the Apostles. But I'll close today's broadcast there in verse 16 one last time. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him how great things, plural, he must suffer for my name's sake. It's going to cost him something to follow the Lord. And I put it to you, it's going to cost you something to follow the Lord. And it's going to cost me something to follow the Lord. So there we are, verse 16, and I'll pick up. Next week's message in Acts 9 verse 17.